We're going to be in Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32, open your Bibles up. Uh, page 72, if you got them. Exodus chapter 32, second book of the Bible, chapter 32. In the list of great stories in history, perhaps top five, it makes most top five lists, is the story of the Odyssey. It's Homer's book following the companion book to the Iliad. In the Odyssey, Odysseus is coming home from the Trojan War, and he's trying to get back to his family, but it's this long, many-year journey to get back to his family after wartime. And he faces all these trials along the way. One of the most famous trials he faces is with the island of the Sirens, the Sirens. He hears about this island that he's going to have to pass by before he can get back to his home. And he hears that if anybody goes by this island, that there are these creatures called sirens that sing beautifully. And any sailor, any person that goes by and, and hears the tempting sound of the siren, the temptation will be so overwhelming, so seductive, that you will not be able to avoid crashing into the island. Many sailors have died just because they heard the sirens' voices and then steered their ships to certain doom. So Odysseus, wanting to make sure that he doesn't fall into the same trap, he he puts beeswax in all of his sailors' ears so they can't hear anything. But he wants to hear what it is, what this melody is, what, what the song of the sirens is that's so tempting. And so he has his men lash him to the mast of the ship. They rope him. And they tie him up so he can't move even if he tried. And he says, no matter what happens, don't let me off this mast. And he stays there, lashed to the mast. Well, they come near the island and the sirens come out. The men immediately see these horrifying creatures, winged creatures, just evil, scary-looking things hovering around the ship. But all Odysseus can see is these seductive women. They're, they're literally seducing him, calling him in. They've tricked his eyes. He can't see right. And they begin to sing, Odysseus, bravest of heroes, draw near to us. On our green island, Odysseus will teach you wisdom, will give you love sweeter than honey. Odysseus, the songs we sing soothe away sorrows, and in our arms you will be happy. Odysseus, bravest of heroes, the songs we sing will bring you peace. They offer him peace, wisdom, power, love. Odysseus begins to, become, begins to become frantic. He's tied to this mast, but he can't move. He's frantically screaming, let me go, let me go, and he wants to steer the ship into the rocks, but his men come along and tie him even tighter so he can't even move because they know that he's being seduced by the siren's call where many men have died by following it in the past. Each and every one of us have sirens in our life. Wicked, evil temptations that sing sweet melodies into our ears. They charm you. They seduce you. They offer you all the things that only God can offer you. And they tell you, if you will just follow them, if you'll just listen, it's beautiful. It sounds right. You can have peace. You can have happiness. You can have all the power you want if you will just listen to the siren's call. And many men have followed them in the past to their death. But the Christian is the one who's lashed to the mast. You anchor yourself to God's word. You don't move an inch. 
Anytime you hear a siren coming, you are just lashed to the mast. And Lord willing, you got some good people around you so that when you start hearing a siren and you start drifting off into idolatry to that place of death, you got a good friend to come tighten those ropes a little bit for you. Make sure you don't veer off track from God's word. What sirens tempt you? What sirens veer you off from God's word offering you something that only God can give you? Today we continue our journey through the book of Exodus, and we're pretty much nearing the end of Exodus, got just a little bit left. And as we come to the end of this journey, where we've left off is the people of God have escaped Egypt out of slavery. This incredible story of redemption, the heartbeat of the entire Bible is the story of redemption and mission. And now what we've found in the last few weeks, the people of God are underneath, they're camped before the mountain of God. Moses has gone up the mountain, their leader. He's gone up and he's getting all these instructions. He's getting the law. And he's learning about the tabernacle. He's learning about the priesthood. He's learning about case law and moral law. And now what we're going to find is what's been going on with the people down below. And we come to the story that some of you may have heard of before called the story of the golden calf. The story of the golden calf. This is a story of idolatry, but it's also a story of grace. It's a story that points us to the cross. I want to show you to you today five principles of faith that we can draw out from the story of the golden calf. So let's begin by reading verses 1 to 6. Verse, chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, remember Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days getting the laws from God. When the people saw that he was delayed coming down the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. Aaron is Moses' right-hand man. He is the high priest over all of the people of God. And the people said to Aaron, get up, Aaron, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't even know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, all right, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in the ears and brought them to Aaron. And Aaron received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, and he made a golden calf. And they said, the crowd then looks at these golden calves and say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. God's plural. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before the golden calf. And Aaron then makes a proclamation and says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now, when you see the Lord in all capital letters in your Old Testament, what name of God is that? Say it loud. Come on. Yahweh. That's the translation for Yahweh. That's the personal name of God that's been revealed to the people of God on this Exodus journey. And Moses, or Aaron, is going to build an altar before these bulls to Yahweh. Uh, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, Pause there. Where did this absolute foolishness begin? Where did it begin? It began because the people of God saw that their leader, Moses, was delayed in coming down the mountain. They had so attached their own faith to Moses' leadership that when he was gone and out of their sight for just a little over a month, idolatry starts to come out. 
Moses takes a one-month retreat. Frankly, it wasn't a retreat. He was up there fasting for 40 days with God, getting the law from God, and the people down below were so confused on what to do. Remember, their life wasn't easy. Let's give them a little credit here, the people of God. They're surviving on manna. Praise be to God, they had food and they weren't starving to death, but it's not exactly a steak, right? They're getting by. They're in tents with many children, elderly and sick. I got three kids. I don't want to live in a tent for that, for that long with my three kids. That would put a lot of stress on my life. Here they are. They're stressed out. Moses is gone, and idolatry comes out of their heart. Principle number one, you ready? Allegiance to a pastor rather than the master is recipe for disaster. Come on. I worked on that one. You ready for it? Thank you. I need some help preaching this one today. Allegiance to the pastor rather than the master is recipe for disaster. See, if your allegiance is to me, your pastor, then when cancer shows up in your life, you're going to quickly realize I don't have what it takes to bring peace in your life. I can't do it. I'm a sinful person just like you. If, if, if your allegiance is to a pastor, to me, or to whatever church you normally go to, and your allegiance is to a pastor, then when your family begins to fall apart and you feel like you're, the seams of your life are coming apart, what's going to happen is idolatry is going to come out because you've been depending on something, someone that can't actually fix you. Church, I love my job. I love everything I do. I love preaching. I love caring for a church. I love seeing and mobilizing you for mission and teaching you everything in the Word of God. I love it. But here's the deal. I'm just like you. I'm a sinner through and through. Every part of me, I'm a sinner. My whole heart has been corrupted. Total depravity got me too. I'm in that camp with you. And if you're depending on me to be the hero of your story, if you're depending on your parents to be the hero of your story, if you're depending on your wife or your husband to be the hero of your story, they got faith figured out, you're just clinging on to them. Then when their life gets really hard and they're falling apart, idolatry is going to come out of your heart. And you're going to realize there was not much faith there to begin with. You've got to latch yourself to Jesus. He alone sustains you. He alone gives you life. He alone infuses the word in you. It's not up to your spouse. It's not up to me. It's not up to a friend. It's you and Jesus. That's what he's accomplished on the cross. Recipe for disaster. And many of us are living in that. Number two, just saying in Jesus' name after a prayer does not make it a holy prayer. All right? I'm having fun today, guys. Ready? Just saying in Jesus' name, like it's an incantation after a prayer, does not make it a holy prayer. It's in the text. Let me show you where. All right. We're told that text that people gathered around Aaron. That's a good way of saying the people rushed upon Aaron. This is an angry people who formed a mob and charged their high priest. They come up to Aaron and they set a trap for him. Now, they know that Aaron's a weak leader. 
They already know it. That's why they did this. They never would have done this with Moses. There's no way they would have done this with Moses. If you've been tracing Exodus with us for the last few months, if you've been tracking and tracing this story, you've gotten to know the character Moses and what he's like. If they would have tried this with Moses, Moses would have picked up a lamb bone and been chasing them out of the, out of the camp. Get that out of here. What are you doing? But they do it with Aaron because they know he's not lashed to the mast. They've seen it in him. It's easy to tell when you're around someone long enough. They go up there and, hey, Aaron, make us a bull. Now, here's the deal. In Egypt, all the gods of Egypt were covered in gold. What they're asking for Aaron to do is to make their God, their new God, Yahweh, make him feel a little bit more like what they used to be comfortable with, like what the pagans do. Just, you know, Aaron, if you do it, you're the high priest, so it'll be all religious-y and stuff, and it's a bull, and bulls were representative of power and strength. And God's, Yahweh's strong and powerful, right, Aaron? Doesn't this sound about right? He's strong and powerful. Well, it's not that big a deal if you make a bull and, and we worship at the, the bull. We can call it Yahweh if you want to. Aaron, you'll do that for us, right? We want a God like the other nations. Now, what's the problem with this? There was this, the, the Ten Commandments. The second commandment clearly said, don't make an image out of God. And what was the reason we discussed on that? The reason was, is because every time you make an image of God, you're essentially making God in your own image. You're choosing the qualities of God that you want to reveal in that image, and then you're choosing the qualities of God that you want to leave out of that image. So here they're saying, we love the power and strength. That's really good to know that God is powerful and strong when you're surrounded by enemy armies. Pretty helpful. But you fail to show grace, mercy, compassion, love. No image can capture the fullness of God. They want him in their image. Hey, Aaron, will you do that for us? They take the general principles of Yahweh and make a bull. And Aaron gives the people what they want. He, he just caves, seemingly without any hesitation. He hears the siren's call beckoning. Now, what was the siren call? Imagine Aaron, right? Not lash the mass of God's word, hearing the siren call. What, what, are, what are they tempting him with? Power? Prestige, you'll be our high priest, Aaron. Aaron, maybe you could be number one one day. Oh, Moses is old. Moses was in his 80s. Aaron, you do this? Yeah, you're next in line. We'll follow you. That's pretty, that's tempting for a man. You give him a little bit of power, he's not lashed to the master God's word. Aaron caves. It's much easier to make a golden calf than it is to re relentlessly demand that Jesus alone be worshipped as Jesus has said he is to be worshipped. It's much easier to make a golden calf than to proclaim very clearly that all other gods are just demons in disguise. It's much easier to make a golden calf and say, you know, we can dabble with the other religions. Let's play with those, the religions of the Egyptian gods. Let's bring in a little Allah and Buddha while we're at it. We can make up our whole own religion. It's much easier to make a golden calf than it is to be lashed to the mast of God's word. And Aaron gives the people what they want. Tomorrow we'll feast to Yahweh. He literally constructs a golden calf, then says, in Jesus' name, and washes his hands and walks away. That should be good. I think that'll do it. Consider this for a second. What was the gold supposed to be used for? The gold they brought out of Egypt. What was, shout it real loud. What was it supposed to be used for? Someone had to be listening. Come on. 
One person. The tabernacle, thank you. The gold had been prescribed by God to be used for the tabernacle. And here they are now making an idol out of it. What that's revealing is that the people of God wanted everything the tabernacle had to offer, just not the person who dwelled inside of it. They wanted a whole lot of religion with no relationship. They want Jesus without the cross. We want salvation without blood. We just make religions up. Let's have salvation without blood. We want wisdom without the word. We want instant gratification with pretty much no faith. We want healing without the power of the Holy Spirit. We want Sunday morning worship with no real conviction or change in our life, no real examination of sin. We want to be Christians but be totally of this world. You see yourself in this a little bit? This is our story. This is what we do over and over again. Every one of us have golden calves in our life. Let's get real specific. A golden calf is not just an idol. A golden calf is when you're justifying ungodly behavior, thinking, or lifestyle and using bible language to back it up. That's a golden calf. When you got something in your life that you're fashioning kind of like God, it's there, you're justifying it, but actually it's an abomination to God, but you justify the behavior by saying you prayed about it. That's a golden calf. When there's something in your life that you just don't examine, you won't even let the Word of God be an MRI machine on your heart in that area because you know you'd have to change your life, so you don't even go there. You just justify it. Oh, I haven't thought about it. Justification. If you don't think about it, well, then you don't have to change, do you? Golden calf. Sirens that lead to death. Literally lead you to death. God invites you into this relationship. He doesn't just want the tabernacle in religion. He wants to dwell in the tabernacle and be among his people. He wants to bring you into the space where you're experiencing life transformation, where you're giving more and more of yourself away and becoming more and more like Jesus as you latch yourself onto God's word. And then he puts you in this community where we all tie the ropes tighter whenever the siren calls us because we're all sinners and we hear the voices every once in a while got to be lashed to the mast. Principle number three. If you want a powerful prayer life, start with the promises of God. If you want a powerful prayer life, let, let's start here. Who wants a powerful prayer life? Anybody? Who, who wants a prayer life? Thank you. Let's do this again. Who wants a powerful prayer life? Yeah? Who wants the kind of prayer life like in the book of Acts where the disciples got around and they prayed so hard and then jail doors burst off their hinges. Who wants that kind of prayer life? I know I do. That's what I want for our, us as a people. I want us to be so close to Jesus that we talk with him and we commune with him and then his spirit goes out in front of us because we're not just playing religion, we're walking with Jesus and he's showing up and he's changing all of us. I want that for me, I want that for my wife, my kids, and I want that for all of you, my family. I want that. And if you want that, you've got to start with the promises of God. Verses 7 to 10. Moses is still up on the mountain. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people... Behold, it's a stiff-necked or a stubborn people. Now, therefore, let me alone, 
Get out of my way, Moses, that my wrath might burn hot against them and that I might consume them in order that I might make a great nation of you. Now pause. What's happening in this scene? God didn't have to say to Moses, leave me alone. Get out of my way. God can go wherever he wants to go. God is inviting Moses into discourse with him. God has a plan that he is going to use Moses' prayer to bring about salvation for God's people. And if Moses does not step in and intercede, God knows he will, but if he wouldn't, God's going to go down and justly destroy all the people. Why? What are the consequences? What are the wages of sin? Death. The wages of sin is death. God would have been completely just in destroying all the people. That's what they brought on themselves. But he invites Moses into this place of conversation with him, of intercession with him. Now, what does he say to Moses? He says, Moses, I'll destroy them and I'll make you a great nation. I'll start over with you. Now, if Moses was not lashed to the mast of God's word, if he wasn't stuck on God's word, that would sound pretty tempting. They had been a tough group of people to lead. They had been pretty fickle. They had been pretty stubborn. God wasn't joking around when he said they were stiff-necked and stubborn. They had been stubborn. And, and there's something powerful about that. Moses, I'll, I'll start the whole journey over with you. You can be the father of many nations, not Abraham. I'll do it, I'll do it with you. How's that sound to you, Moses? God's putting Moses through a trial, not because God doesn't know what's already in Moses' faith and what he's already made of, but so that Moses will know what Moses is made of. Is Moses latched to the mast of God's word? Does Moses know and does he believe that the story is not that Moses would be the father of many nations, but that Abraham would be the father of many nations? And that's the story God's writing. Can't be any other way. Let's see what comes out of Moses' heart. Verses 11 to 14. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on the people. He looks at God and he says, God, don't destroy him. Your glory is at stake. If you look at what Moses says there, it's never about the people. It's always about God's glory. He says, God, your your glory's on the line. What will the nation say about you? My primary concern is your glory. And then he goes back to the promises of God and he quotes from Genesis when God said, I'll make a great nation out of Abraham. That's a promise. You want a powerful prayer life. You start with the promises of God and then you bring those back to God when you're in times of trouble. God, you said, you promise. You never leave me nor forsake me. God, your glory's on the line. I need you now. I need you. Your glory's what's at stake. God, you said you'd be a father to me. And I feel fatherless right now, and it crushes me, and I need you. Your glory's on the line, God. 
God, you said you never put me through any trial in this life that would be too hard for me because you've given me your spirit. But I feel like I'm falling apart, God. I'm cracking at the seams. Your glory is on the line. You see, when you pray those prayers, when you go back to the word of God and you bring the promises of God back to God in prayer and you tell him his glory is on the line because he is the one who made the promise, there's power in that prayer. There's power in praying God's promises back to him. And if we want a powerful prayer movement in this church, we've got to learn how to do this. We've got to go before God and say, God, this is the reality. This is what I'm feeling, and these are what your promises are, and I need them now. Are you praying God's promises? There's something else that happens here that's pretty amazing. It says, God relented of the disaster. That's verse 14. God relented of the disaster he was going to bring on them. Get this. God makes determination to give grace to sinners before Moses even comes down the mountain and brings the indictment of their sin. Get this. God predetermines to forgive the sinner while they're still sinning. They're down having a party. Moses is about to go down the mountain. He gets halfway. He meets with Joshua. Joshua says, sounds like there's a battle going on down there. And Moses says, no, that's not a battle. That's pagan worship. They're throwing a pagan party. Their debauchery is so intense that it sounds like a battle. And while all that's going on, God has already determined to forgive sinners. Isn't that good news? That when you are still a sinner... Yet still in your sins, God forgave you through Jesus Christ. You didn't come to him after you got your act together. He found you while you were still sinning. That's what he did to me. I was drunk when I got on my knees. I was drunk. I was a senior in high school. I got on my knees. I said, this is totally not fulfilling. Fell on my knees, opened my hands to God. I said, God, I don't even know who you are, but if you got better plans than this empty life, you better do it because I'm going in a different route. Big Ten schools coming up. And God ripped me out of it. Not because I did anything. He got me when I was in the midst of my sin. And that's what he did here. He predetermines to save and to give grace while we're still in our sin. Hallelujah. Because if it was up to us, we would never come. Number four, whoever is not for Jesus is against Jesus. Now, if you don't like exclusivity, welcome to the Bible. Whoever is not for Jesus is against Jesus. Now, verse 21. Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? In other words, what story are you going to give me that's going to justify what's been happening while I've been up on the mountain there and I left you in charge of this place for a month and this is what's going on? You better have something good, Aaron. Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. For you know the people, that they are set on evil. Terrible start. Horrible leadership. He's blaming other people. It sounds just like Adam and Eve, right? Yeah, it doesn't sound like Adam and Eve. She made me do it, God. She gave me that apple. It's her fault. Blame her. They're terrible, evil people, Moses. You know it. They came up to me. They said, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So I said to them, let any of you who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. 
Now, if that isn't the best excuse, the guy deserves an Academy Award. Here's the deal. We already know he's lying because earlier in the chapter, it said that Aaron handcrafted the calves. Come on. I threw the gold in the fire, Moses. Now, who, do you, who is he fooling here? He's not fooling himself. He's not fooling God. He's not fooling any of the people in the camp. They all saw him make it. And he's definitely not fooling Moses. If anyone's got street smarts, it's Moses. He knows what's going on. Some of us, this is exactly what we do. We laugh at Aaron. But we do the same thing. We let idolatry slip into our life, and then we make ridiculous excuses for it that no one believes. You know, I've seen you've been drinking a lot recently. It's been a... It's been bad. Any, anything going on we need to talk about? Oh, no, no, no. Just been a busy season, a lot of stress. I'm good. Really? That's what that is? You sure? I noticed you haven't been around church all that much, kind of not hanging out. You know, Hebrews tells us don't forsake the gathering of God's people. And I noticed you really haven't been here, been leaving early, coming late, and haven't really been participating in everything. Is everything okay? Oh, work's just been busy. Got family stuff going on. I just threw it in the fire and a golden calf popped out. You're not fooling anybody. You know what you need? Here's what's amazing. Where were the other people of God when all this went down? Where were the elders? Where were the the people that loved Yahweh that were sitting there going, is he really going to do that? Nobody spoke up. No one said that's idolatry. No one said Moses is coming down the mountain and it ain't going to be good when he gets back. What we need is family, community, that when one of us, even me, when one of us starts to listen to the siren calls and begins to go down a terrible path that's going to lead us to death and destruction, a brother or sister in Christ to come alongside you say, hey, let me tighten that rope on you for you. You got to get back to God's word. Not let you slip into idolatry, and by the time this is over, 3,000 people are going to die. See, this is what family is. we got to be so close to each other that that we can't just sneak by with lame excuses. Is that the kind of family we are? we got some ways to go on this family. Are you so close with the person in front of you, the person behind you, the person next to you, and the person on the other side of the room from you, and with me, that we would be able to spot idolatry in each other's life and call it out in each other? Where was everybody? Everyone stayed silent. The great sin of the modern church is that everyone stays silent. We come into church on a Sunday and it's just idolatry, 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 everywhere. And no one says anything. We gotta speak into each other's lives. You've been given the spirit to bring conviction into one another's lives and lash each other to the mass. God's word is so good, it leads to life. The law comes down and Moses makes an excuse, or Aaron makes an excuse, but look what Moses does. Verse 25 to 28. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose, to the derision of their enemies. Let's pause. Israel was set up to be a light to the nations. That's why they existed. God's plan has never changed. He's winning for himself a people from every people group to worship before his throne from every nation. That's what they were for. And now the nations are looking in at them in debauchery and laughing at them. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. 
And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, so now it's God speaking, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate throughout the camp. Each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, 3,000 men of the people fell. How many? Come on, say it out loud. How many people fell that day? 3,000 people died. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord and won at the cost of his son and his brother so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Now let me just brief excursus explain this to you. In the New Testament, we are under a new covenant. And the laws of a nation are not tied to spiritual laws. And so there is no justification under the new covenant under Jesus for capital punishment for spiritual crimes. We do not kill under the new covenant for spiritual crimes. But in the old covenant under Israel, the nation and the faith were merged as one. And so the laws of faith were the laws of the nation. And God was totally justified to bring death for spiritual crimes on the people of God under the old covenant in Israel. That's not today. Jesus has established a new covenant. But what does Moses do? He draws a line in the sand. He says, anyone who's for God, get over here right now. And a group of people come over. Anyone who's for the idol, go stand over there. And a group of people go stand over there. And that day, 3,000 people died who were convinced they wanted to worship the idol. There is no middle ground in the Christian faith. Now, if you're in this room and you're seeking, and you're asking a lot of questions about faith, and you're saying to yourself, I'm a good person, I'm on this journey, I'm trying to learn about Jesus, but I haven't accepted Jesus yet. Here's what I want you to know. At the moment, you are an enemy of God. That's what Scripture says. Your sins are stacked up against you, and your life is at the antithesis of what God has planned for you. And at the moment, your sin is on top of you, and hell awaits. That is the only just punishment for sinners. But here's God. He's already predetermined to offer you forgiveness. He stands over here and he says, if you've been over there, if you will come to me and repent and receive my forgiveness, I will give you life in full and not what you deserve. And there's no middle ground. You can't stand here and just say, well, I'm kind of a life over here. I'm kind of a life for Jesus. I'm kind of in no man's land. Moses draws a line in the sand. He says, who's for Yahweh? Come on over here. Repent, receive forgiveness, it's done. He's already forgiven you. He already determined to do it. Now, if you're over there, death still awaits you. I want you to know, church, if you're not for Jesus, you are against Jesus. There is no middle ground. And what I'm telling you is that the time is short. Nobody knows what today brings. If you've been waiting for that right moment, you've been going through life saying, you know, and I, talk, I have these conversations with people, there's going to come a time when I'm going to get all to God. I was sharing the gospel just the other day at Millennium Park. Young man, works down at Target. You want to go evangelize? Evangelize the guys at Target. That's where he works. He came to us and I said, what's stopping you from accepting Jesus right now? He said, I will at some point. I just, you know, basically he was saying, I just have a little bit more debauchery to get out of my system. That's what he was saying. I said, don't wait. You don't know if you're going to get hit by a car when you walk out of this conversation with me. And there's, there, there's, there's no second chance. There's, there's against Jesus and there's for Jesus. You're in a very dangerous place. And he walked away. He couldn't do it. 
Those who are not for Jesus are against Jesus, but God has offered forgiveness through the cross to all who will repent and trust in the name of Christ. Number five, fifth principle, we'll end on this. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater Moses. Verse 30 to 40, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for you. This is why Moses goes up the mountain. He's going to try to make atonement, reconciliation for sinners before God. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. I think what Moses is saying there is saying, take me instead. Here's my life as a ransom, God. I offer it. Blot me out of the book of life. Save them. Now, was Moses able to offer his life for many? Noble, honorable, way to go, Moses. I mean, that's more than I'd be willing to do. Was he able? No. He was a sinner. He couldn't actually do it. What does God say to him? But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot out of the book of life. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And he sent a plague upon them. God says to Moses, you can't offer atonement, Moses. You just lead them forward. Because where you're leading is coming one who can offer atonement. So you just keep leading, Moses. Do the task I've assigned to you because you're pointing them towards the one who could offer atonement. Jesus comes down, makes a similar offer to the Father. says, take my life as an atoning sacrifice on behalf of the others. And God receives him, his life on the cross. Why? Because Jesus was a worthy sacrifice. He was sinless. Moses was a sinner. His blood could not forgive any sin. But Jesus, perfect and sinless, that's atoning blood. God takes that sin and he counts our sins against Jesus and Jesus dies on the cross in your place so that all who would believe in him would have forgiveness, atonement from God. Now here's what's amazing. How many people died the day the letter of the law came down the mountain? Shout it. How many died? 3,000. 3,000 died the day the letter of the law came down the mountain. Jesus is not only the better Moses who offers atonement for people, but Jesus is the greater Moses who writes the letter of the law, the spirit of the law on our hearts. In the book of Acts, there's this amazing scene. The whole scene we've been studying in Exodus took place on Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover. That's when it took place. Now try to remember with me what happened on the Pentecost after Jesus' death. The Holy Spirit came down. That was the day the Holy Spirit came down. Jesus ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He sends the Holy Spirit down. And what the Holy Spirit does is it writes the law of God on your heart. When Moses came down the mountain with law on tablets of stone, outside forces trying to compel you to be a better person, 3,000 people died. The Holy Spirit comes down, writes the law on human heart. Now let me read to you from Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit writes the law on the heart. Those who received the word were baptized, and there were added to that day. How many people do you think were added to that day into the faith on that first Pentecost? 3,000 people. Same day, Jesus reverses the curse. 
That's what happened. The letter of the law brings death, Pentecost, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the law written on your heart brings life. This is what that means. If your plan for life is to live upward, up to an outward moral code and just say, I can do enough to earn right standing with God, that when I stand on my judgment day, he's going to look at me and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You followed my law well. That's the law written on stone. That leads to death. That's all it leads to. You can't do enough. You're not that good. <laughs> I know you. I'm not that good. But God's made another way. Rather than laws on the outside that compel us to try to earn our salvation through better works, he writes the law on your heart by receiving Jesus by faith, putting the Holy Spirit inside of you, and that gives you true life. Then you actually begin to be morphed from the inside out, not from pressures confining you to try to make you better, but from life coming out of you from the inside. And as you draw closer to Jesus, that just wells up inside of you. Jesus wants this dynamic, powerful relationship with you. He doesn't just want religion. He doesn't want you to go through the motions. He doesn't want you to come in here and every week go back to the same life you've been living, never experiencing powerful prayer, never experiencing powerful biblical community, never experiencing the Holy Spirit. Oh, he wants you to have life to the full to all who will put their faith in him. Amen? Let me pray. Jesus, we praise you this morning. Thank you for this powerful story where there's so much we could speak of. And I feel like I just scratched the surface with the principles we could pull out of this text today. God, I pray for us that we would be lashed to the mast. That we would be those kind of people who don't move, who, who just stay tied to your word. No matter what siren calls us, no matter how good it looks, no matter what it offers us, that we would know Jesus is better and that we wouldn't sway from your word one inch. Form that us. Form that in us, God. That's what we want. We want to be a people that the nations look in on us and they say, what kind of God is that that dwells among this people? What your people Israel were supposed to be. God, would you form that in this church? We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.